0: Sometimes, to go forwards, we need to go backwards – a long way backwards to the beginnings of human existence. If we want answers to vital questions, like when were textiles invented, when did we start wearing clothes, and how old are needles? These questions are fundamental to our humanity, and yet very little attention has been paid to them in the past. But recently, a new kind of archaeologist has begun to rewrite the story, not just of cloth, but also the much larger tale of how human beings developed and organised themselves, how towns and cities grew, how people began to travel, to trade, and to wage war on each other. And in doing so, They're changing everything we used to believe about ourselves. These are textile archaeologists, people who devote their work to unraveling the secrets of ancient textiles, rather than discarding them as worthless as used to happen. One of them is Margherita Gleber, and we went to the University of Padua in Italy to talk to her. Margarita is a scientist through and through, but one who is fascinated by ancient textiles and how they were made and used. She's at the top of her field and recognized globally for her knowledge and work on early textiles in the Mediterranean and Europe. And one of the lovely things about her is her joy in textiles, her knowledge and enthusiasm bubble out of her.
1: I think first of all I see uh, my role is bringing textiles onto kind of wider radar of people who generally don't think about them. Until recently, it was always regarded as some sort of very specialized kind of research done by primarily conservators, because they're the ones who have to deal with this in a way very problematic, inconvenient material, because it's fragile, it is difficult, it is messy. And mostly archaeologists, when they find textiles in the field, it creates more problems than anything else. And I'm happy to say that over the last 20, 30 years, I think we've moved on and textile archaeology has become much more mainstream. It is now acceptable that this material, like any other, like pottery, like metals, like glass, you have to study it as part of material record of past cultures. And it's important not to separate it, but see it as more holistically, as part of these past cultures, they absolutely needed textiles and anything that had to do with fibrous materials. Uh, going back already, as, as we've seen, to Paleolithic and certainly in later periods, uh, we cannot live without them. It's a necessity for us. So we cannot ignore them in terms of looking at economies of the past, at social organization of the past, at identity.
0: Welcome to Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. My name is Joe Andrews, and I'm a hand weaver interested in what textiles tell us about the story of humanity, and in particular what they have to say about the often unrecorded lives of those who make cloth and fabric. This time, for the start of season five, we're taking a trip back in time as far as science will allow us to go, to try to answer some of the most fundamental questions about textiles and human beings. Margarita will be our guide. Before we start, I should say that this episode is for Gabriel and Ethan Kamsey, who are ten and eight and regular listeners. They specifically asked for more about insects and textiles. This episode does include some insect content, but it's about a lot more as well. I hope it interests you and the rest of us as well. This is an exciting time to study ancient textiles because so little has been properly looked at in the past. There are lots of gaps in our knowledge, Lots to be discovered, and who knows where this road may yet take us.
1: Margarita herself came into this field by chance. I actually started my education at the university in biology, and in a roundabout way, I took a class in art history, which started with ancient art history. And I became so fascinated and so interested in it that I decided to do also a degree in art history. I was doing those two in parallel. And when uh, I was finishing university, the time came to decide which direction to take. I was sure I wanted to move on with graduate education, uh, doing a PhD, but I didn't know anything about what an art historian does. So my professor of ancient art suggested that I should go on an excavation. I tried that and I absolutely fell in love with the process of excavating and uncovering the past and the combination that it allowed me to do of natural sciences that I knew and was interested in and humanities. So um, that's basically how I became an archaeologist. And when I was doing my master's degree, I wanted to work on actual archaeological material and the excavation director of the site where I was working at the time, gave me spindle whorls and loom weights to work with on my topic. And the more I started looking into that, the more fascinated I became with the fact that nobody was really interested in textile production in ancient Italy, even though it seemed to me like this was a fundamental part of economy, of religious aspects, of social aspects of all ancient societies, and particularly in ancient Italy, I would say. So um, the more I got to understand how little there is, the more I wanted to study it. So I continued with that now for over 20 years, not only in Italy, but in other parts of the world. And um, I suspect that I will probably be studying textiles until the end of my life. Margarita's parents are both scientists. But
0: looking back, she realizes that there were some good textile traditions in her
1: family. There were probably some nudges uh, because on both of my family sides, my grandmothers were textile producers. My Lithuanian grandmother wove textiles. She uh, produced linen in fairly traditional Lithuanian patterns. And in fact, the loom was standing in the room that I was sharing with her when I was a child. Uh, on my Ukrainian side, uh, my grandmother was an excellent embroiderer. She also did sewing and all sorts of other textile related activities, but um, what she was excellent at and what she loved to do in her spare time was beadwork and embroidery, traditional Carpathian embroidery. And I still have some of um, her works with me, which is a wonderful heirloom, I would say, that reminds me also the background, I suppose, that I come from.
0: But Margarita's world today is one in which she is peering back into the far past, rather than the recent past of her grandmothers. Trying to answer questions such as, How long have people been wearing clothes? Of course, fabrics and fur crumble to dust quite quickly, and very little from deep time survives. But insects, in particular lice, have given scientists a way to understand how long
1: clothing has been around. You may know that there are two types of lice that human body hosts, the head lice and the body louse. The body louse lives on your body and primarily in the clothing, in any kind of cover that covers the human body, whereas the head louse, of course, is only in the hair. And they have these very separate environments in which they operate. But at some point, there was only one species. And about 100,000 years ago, according to genetic analysis, these two separated which indirectly gives us an idea that at that point, people start covering their bodies with something. These would have not have been textiles, fabrics. These probably would have been skins. And we're talking probably more in the climates uh, and during the time periods that Earth was cooler. And so people needed to survive, to wear something. Uh, So these would have been animal pelts, skins, something that we imagine, in fact, prehistoric people wearing all the time.
0: So here we have clothes of a sort, something to dress in and to decorate, not textiles, but clothes. And after that comes a small tool that would quietly change the world, a tool that is still in use today, all these millennia later.
1: As far as I recall, the earliest needles we have are about 60,000 years old and they come from South Africa. But, of course, we don't know what they were used for because, of course, skins would have required sewing as well. Needles are older than textiles, absolutely, because you need needles to sew your skin garments. You also need needles to attach sometimes thousands and thousands of tiny beads to your leather garments. And we have evidence for that um, from uh, some of the burials in Russia, for example, where uh, there are beautiful decorations on uh, what we presume were skin garments. Um, You need somehow to sew them on. You need to make holes in the leather to be able to attach these little beads or or other elements that you want to use for decoration. So needles are older than textiles. Um, That said, uh, of course, the limiting factor with needles is the material, because if you want to make a very fine hole, you need to have a very fine needle. But to make an eye in the needle that's fine enough is always a problem, particularly with materials like ivory and bone, which shatter very easily. So you also then need materials to create the needle. Uh, and those would have been always a little bit thick. Um, they may have been used more as holes rather than needles, so making holes and then passing the thread directly, uh, using, for example, boar bristles. That's one of the techniques that um, we know ethnographically, and it works very well also in leather making. uh, was still used in medieval times, as far as I know. making shoes. Uh, But once people invent metals, that is a game-changer, because you can make a very fine needle, you can cast the bronze, or later on, of course, they become out of iron and steel, but bronze ones are particularly uh, common throughout a very long period of time. Uh, That's when I think they start being used with textiles. And again, it's not only sewing things together, because if we look at the fashions, if we can call it that, of the Mediterranean cultures and Mesopotamian, they're not tailored. They're generally pieces of cloth that are woven to shape and arranged on the body with very minimal uh, sewing. Even Roman tunic, for example, it would be woven to shape with sleeves and then only the side seams would be quickly stitched together. So um, needles were not strictly speaking even necessary in some of these societies. But if we look in Eurasian side where we have um, horse riding cultures which are believed to have um, invented things like trousers that we all use on a daily basis, um, and uh, kaftans and tailored garments that we take for granted, those, of course, would have required uh, quite a bit of tailoring and sewing. And we have already quite advanced uh, types of stitching that we observe already in the Bronze Age finds from um, Takalarmakan Desert, where we have uh, quite a lot of mummies preserving full clothing. So needles, of course, are absolutely fundamental wore human clothing, but they're not directly connected to textiles. That means that
0: the needle is older than the sword by several thousands of years. In fact, the humble needle is one of the oldest human tools in existence. Much, much older than the invention of the wheel, the introduction of farming, or the use of the boat. Its impact on humanity seems just as great as these but it has been much less written about or celebrated. We now have to wait several thousand years dressed in our fur and leather with beads attached with needles. But then comes along one of the great game-changers in human existence, the invention of string and thread. It's impossible to say which humans first discovered that rolling dead plant stems along their thighs could create a strong twine. But it altered everyone's lives, and it still does today. Elizabeth Wayland Barber, the academic and author of the book Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years, says... So powerful, in fact, is simple string in taming the world to human will and ingenuity that I suspect it to be the unseen weapon that allowed the human race
1: to conquer the earth. Margarita agrees. I think it was an absolutely a revolution when people started doing that. First of all, if you think of all the purposes that string can be used for, uh, from building to um, making tools, those arrowheads made out of stone, they have to be attached to the wooden part somehow. Of course, you can use sinew, you can use unprocessed fibers, and so on. But if you have a actual nice thread or a rope or a cord, you can do it much better and it's much stronger and uh, it will work much better for that. Uh, You can start creating two-dimensional objects such as nets, which allow you to capture animals, to catch birds, to catch fish. Uh, or simply use a cord for fishing, as we still do today, of course, we use synthetic materials, but in the past, these would have been all made out of various plant fibers. So from subsistence to building to um, personal adornment, a string would have revolutionized the way people carried on with their lives. We are still in the Stone Age when this happens, but the evidence is clear that string began to become dress. So in concrete dates, we're talking uh, twenty-seven to 20,000 years ago. And our evidence consists of um, these little figurines that are known in archaeology as Venus figurines. Uh, you may have heard of the famous Venus of Willendorf, which is uh, a tiny figurine of a rather plump female figure that is currently in the Museum of Natural History in Vienna, in Austria. And she has... Um, kind of a net on her head. There are other figurines like the uh, Les Pugnes Venus from France that has sort of a string skirt on her, and others from Russia, from Ukraine, from other parts of the world that, again, have string-like elements depicted on them. They're very stylized, but it's very clear that all of them have something on their body that um, is very much string-like. And the curious thing is that these seem to be mm, not so much elements that protect the body, but rather highlight certain parts of the body. So they're very much connected to the identity rather than simple physical protection that we think of textiles generally having. Uh, so these are probably that were, earliest indications that by that point in time, people know how to make string and how to combine it possibly with other elements uh, into objects that they wear on their bodies. We haven't quite arrived at the catwalk
0: and couture, but here's the beginning of that road where string and then textiles
1: slowly start to replace skins. So 20,000 years ago, roughly speaking, people start adding to that repertoire uh string-like elements. Whether they were for decoration first or already start using them as true fabrics, we don't know. We don't have um yet the resolution archeologically of that kind of data. Nevertheless, by I would say 10,000 BC, probably fabrics are starting to be as important in some parts of the world as skins. Certainly in the warmer climates, in the Mediterranean, in the the Near East, in the the Mesopotamian regions, where we have a lot of some of the earliest developments um, that that we see in terms of domestication, in terms of uh, technologies and so on, probably we start getting already textiles starting slowly replacing skins as the primary material for human clothing, and lots of other types of uses.
0: And the reason this happens is that textiles work much better
1: than skins and fur, especially in hot climates. The earliest textiles we have are actually made out of plant fibers. First, they're using whatever is available in the environment, tree bast, various kinds of grasses possibly, until little by little experimentation um, shows that certain varieties of flax are particularly suitable for making beautiful fibers that allow you to uh, create very long, very strong, very fine threads uh, that in their turn allow you to weave beautiful, thin, comfortable cloth that can be used particularly in hotter climates. And it's also then if we think about by that point Human beings insist on covering their body. So you need this cover. It's a necessity on a par with food and shelter. A
0: necessity may be, but right from the beginning, textiles have been something else as well. They have been carriers and expressions of who we are. And
1: this is what makes Margarita's work interesting and exciting. It very quickly becomes part of people's identity. And I think that we can take back already to the earliest strings that we see on these little Venus figurines. They're not protecting the body from the elements. They are expressing their identity. And I think textiles still remains one of the primary carriers of our identity, whether individual one, our our sex, our gender, our uh, ethnicity, our religion, our age, uh, but also group identity. We belong to a certain village. We belong to a certain profession. We belong to a certain caste. We belong to a certain rank. All of these elements can be read uh, as far as non-verbal communication in an instant by somebody who understands the language of textiles, the language of dress, because in the end, now most of our dress is textiles. Uh, We still use a little bit of leather and skin. But um, around the world, if we look, majority of costumes um, and most of dress is textiles.
0: It's hard for archaeologists to get this kind of data from ancient textiles because often they're working with tiny fragments. But this is where
1: ancient mosaics, frescoes and vases come in. Once people start showing themselves in paintings, on vases, in sculpture, all of a sudden we have this entire new body of reference that allows us to see, yes, In ancient Egypt, they were very different things than in ancient Mesopotamia or in ancient Greece or in ancient Iberia, Um, and we can take it all around the world. Uh, This is why a single glance, not only at the style of representation, but also at the dress that the people represented are wearing, can allow us to place uh, any work of ancient art in a particular culture. Very often, it is about the dress. We can all imagine... um, a Greek peplos or himation uh, on a Greek statue when we we go to a museum and we immediately recognize that as something belonging to ancient Greek culture. Uh, Same with later periods as well. So I think this is something that goes back a very, very long time ago. Uh, What element of textile was important is more difficult to say, but uh, we certainly see in later periods that it's both the type of fiber they use the type of weave um, that they choose to to combine their threads into, the colors, the combination of colors, additional elements, um, addition of beads or appliques, uh, embroidery, the way the textiles are combined with each other, and also the type of clothing. Is it uh, something that's arranged on the body um, and woven to shape, and you use pins and belts and uh, other kinds of elements to fix it on the body, or is it tailored? So all of these can create an infinite variety of expressions that we see. And then the question becomes, why do certain groups of people in certain periods of time choose this particular combination? Or the other. Uh, and these are very difficult questions, of course, to answer, but very fun ones to explore as an archaeologist.
0: The great problem for textile archaeologists is that the stuff doesn't last very long. I wear out even my own clothes, so how does clothing that is thousands of years old survive?
1: There are certain circumstances, uh, certain conditions in the environment that can preserve textiles. This can be very hot climate, very arid climate. We see that, for example, in Egypt um, or high elevations and dryness and heat uh, in the Andes. For example, most of the pre-Columbian textiles survive that way in perfect conditions almost. Freezing. We freeze our food to preserve it. It works the same way with textiles. So uh, the famous um, Ötzi, the Iceman, is preserved that way. He hasn't got true textiles, but he's got twinings and he's got leather. And um, in a way, he's our first sort of point of reference for prehistoric Europe in terms of what people were wearing at the time. And water can also be helpful. So waterlogging can be one way of also for textiles to survive. If uh, textiles fall into water and um, there is very little oxygen in it for the microorganism to thrive and to effectively rot away, to eat away the textile, textiles can survive for a very long time. Especially if uh, in combination they have also been charred, exposed to fire in anoxic conditions. And this is the case, for example, with a lot of Neolithic Swiss textiles that survive in the uh, lakes. Some of them date to 4000 BC, and uh, a little bit later as well, uh, Italian lakes as well, the pile-dwelling cultures that uh, lived on the, on the Great Lakes in Central uh, Europe, uh, around the Alps. They produce fantastic textiles, and we're lucky to have them, because um, often in these villages that were made out of wood, You would have fire, fire would sweep through, everything would fall into the water and get silted over and preserved. Another famous case, recently excavated uh, late Bronze Age settlement of Must Farm in uh, Cambridgeshire, where we have absolutely fantastic preservation of fibrous objects and textiles, of course, wood and many other things, Um, there there is a particularity because depending on the acidity of water, you might have preservation either of plant materials or animal materials. So if it must farm, and in the Swiss, Italian, uh, Neolithic and Bronze Age settlements, we have mostly plant fibers, not because they didn't use wool. It's because wool does not survive in the alkaline water conditions. On the other hand, in places like Denmark or Ireland, where we have the famous bog bodies, some of which are fully dressed, we have primarily wool, skins, um, and uh, materials made out of proteins. And that's because they are acidic and acids destroy cellulose that we have in plant fibers, but they preserve proteins. Uh, In the 19th century, there was even an idea that certain cultures had a preference for wool rather than linen based on these differential preservations. But of course, now we know that it has nothing to do with the real preference, but that we have certain part of material record missing.
0: Remember the name Must Farm. The final report on the excavation of this early Bronze Age site in Britain is due to be published this year. Margarita believes it will revolutionise our understanding of textile traditions in prehistory. But at present, what she spends most of her time working with is another kind of preserved textile, a form of
1: textile fossilization. We have a very particular type of preservation that I deal with uh, as my daily bread, effectively, and that is mineralized textiles. They're not quite fossils. Basically, in contact with iron or with copper based alloys, such as bronze in particular, textiles may uh, survive as um, uh, they're sometimes called pseudomorphs, meaning they are effectively casts of textiles. They can be positive or negative casts that uh, survive because metal salts slowly replace or accumulate on um, fibers. And I say slowly, but in reality, it happens actually within weeks or months. So sometimes these textiles Reflect the reality even more so than some of the organically preserved material, which often shrink, uh, degrade, swell, and lose their original configuration. We cannot tell the colors of mineralized textiles because they've been replaced by these metal salts, but they are perfect copies of um, actual weave, and we, e- we can even identify the raw material using techniques like uh, scanning electron microscopy, because they form perfect casts of the fiber on the microscopic level. So I can tell whether the textile was made out of wool or out of flax or some other fiber simply by analyzing a tiny bit of this textile. And that's where Margarita
0: is happiest, looking down a microscope at tiny bits of ancient textiles that tell her amazing stories about who people were and what they wore.
1: I love that. I love that because it allows you that uh, sort of um, constant little discovery moment uh, where you see, aha, this is made out of this material, and this is the kind of technique they used to produce this teensy bit. Often mineralized textiles are just a few millimeters, few centimeters at most. Um, so uh, they're really tiny precious windows into the past that um, unfortunately in the past were also removed because... Uh, in conservation, it was considered that you need to try to get to the metal object and make it pristine. Uh, and so, you know, you would get, I don't know, 565th um, spearhead or sword, but the unique textile that was on it was not considered of interest. And so it was removed. Fortunately, this has changed. And uh, now we have wonderful conservators who realize the importance of this data. And even if for the conservation purposes, they have to remove these traces, they at least record them, or they call somebody like me to study it, to analyze it, uh, so that we actually have the record of it. The earliest fibers are linen, nettle, and hemp. It took time
0: for other fibers to be used, and new tools and methods of processing
1: them to be discovered. Wool and cotton come in much, much later, um, only well into the Neolithic. So, 6th, 5th millennium BC is when we start getting um, really evidence that these fibers, short fibers, become usable. And only much later, say, 3rd, 2nd millennium BC, where we have really written and archaeological evidence that these become more mainstream. And now we have fully fledged
0: textile societies, where fabric is critical to the needs of the thousands of people who lived in the ancient towns and cities. It was to have a profound impact on how life was organised and what
1: people did for thousands of years. What does it mean in terms of, um, let's say, a city like Athens in Greece, or a city like Tarquinia in Etruria, functioning on a daily basis? Because all of these thousands of people, they need to be dressed. They um, They need bedding. They need curtains, carpets, cushions. Everything that we have inside our houses today, they already had. And most importantly, They're moving around the Mediterranean at this point more than at any point in history and they need sails and they need lots of sails because those ships are not going anywhere without their engine and their engine are sails. So you need huge quantities of flax to be grown to be then processed to produce the cloth for the sails and this has to be organized at some point. Uh, Certainly, it appears that for most of this period, and probably all the way until the Industrial Revolution, domestic production, domestic cottage industry, still is really the main mode of producing textiles. Um, This can be enhanced very quickly, um, if there is a necessity, let's say the city is going to war, we need lots of sails for our warships. Uh, every household gets, um, sort of a directive to produce a certain quantity. Uh, we can think of it as sort of taxation, which we have also examples of in much later periods in medieval times, in Viking age, where the production of um, bad mal, this particular kind of cloth, then Basically, every household was producing that to pay um, taxes, and then this cloth was used for sales for any other kind of purposes that was needed by the the organization, by the state, uh, whatever entity that was um, sort of unifying the society that we're talking about. So certainly uh, I think that textiles were absolutely fundamental to the development of the cities, but we do not have um, direct evidence as possibly with some of the other industries because it remained in the hands very much of households. And because textile production was based in the household, that brings us to the vital question of who was doing all this work? And of course, that means also women. And women are very often invisible, both in archaeological record and in terms of how we approach it. It's only recently that we start um, really paying more attention to what was the role of women in ancient societies. Um, Our written records are very much biased because they're written, whether we like it or not, by men. Um, And they were not interested in showing this side of life, apart from very particular size of it. Uh, so we have half of the humanity really involved in um, industry that was probably the most time-consuming of all types of production in absolute until really the uh, Industrial Revolution. And that is actually what the Industrial Revolution does when it comes around. It is all about textile production. It is about making textile production more efficient, faster, producing more um, in better ways. And that's when things finally change, when this switches from being something that's done on a household level, uh, even more advanced household industry, even small workshops. Uh, But until that point, humanity produces textiles primarily at home. And that is always less visible than anything that we can find in terms of workshops or factories um, for other types of materials.
0: Margarita says the central role women played in producing
1: textiles is implicit in her work. But if we look at iconography, if we look at, uh, for example, where we find textile tools. uh, In Iron Age Italy, in archaic Italy in Etruria, practically every woman's grave includes a spindle whorl. It's uh, to the point that um, in the past where osteological determination of the sex of the skeletal remains was not done, or in cases where it's not possible because the bones are too degraded or we had a cremation burial, the sex of the individual was assigned on the basis of the presence of textile tools. There are exceptions, but there are so few that they prove the rule in a way. It's not the case maybe in all of the societies, but if we look also at iconography, who is depicted by the loom? It's usually women. At the point when production becomes much more industrialized, you start seeing men coming in. And this is the case possibly in medieval times we we look at guilds, right? The Italian famous guild system for production of a variety of um, very high quality textiles. Um, then of course you start getting men uh, involved. And this is something we see also in the ethnographic examples of other types of production, pottery, uh, even food production. Who are the most famous chefs today? They're mainly men, Uh, and yet it is women who are primarily associated with cooking on the household level. Uh, And it's it's sort of a funny dichotomy. She also
0: cautions against making wholesale assumptions. She believes that such was the need at times that whole communities would work together.
1: For example, yes, we know that women were spinning and weaving, but who was tending the flocks? Um, traditionally, it usually was the men, because it was a dangerous thing to do. If you're going out into the mountains, there are wolves, there are brigands, there are um, all sorts of things going on that um, women usually stayed at home, and they had to look after the household, looked after the children. Traditionally, that was the case. So sheep tending, sheep shearing probably was primarily done by men, and we have to remember that. Um, Same possibly with production of flax, where entire communities would have to come together to do that. Spinning, it's an activity that traditionally is associated with women, yes, but spinning is also the bottleneck of textile production. And therefore, when you need a lot of thread, everybody who's capable of doing it will be doing it. Again, we have historical and ethnographic examples of that where old and young men, women, women, Whoever is available, everybody spends to produce enough thread for then the weavers to uh, carry out their work when they have sufficient amount of um, of thread ready. Um, but in terms of, of what the sort of the society wants to project, of course, it is the women that are the textile makers, just like the women are the carers, the cooks, and so on. Um, if we look around today there is not such strong differentiation anymore. And yet the stereotypes persist. So we need to be sometimes a little bit careful when we project the stereotypes also in the past. Um, There were stereotypes created by the past for us to sometimes maybe too simplistically um, take them and uh, organize things into convenient little boxes. Uh, It it is much simpler to divide, like men do this, women do this, But it was as today, much more complicated, much more nuanced than it is. So there's certain tendencies um, and the tendency is that yes, women are primarily weavers and spinners and makers of textile, but it's not 100%. But we will leave Margarita with her microscope and her
0: knowledge that whenever she finds something with textiles on it or as
1: part of it, it has something to tell her it's also part of really the story of the object. Why is the textile on it? What does it tell us about the past? But it comes from burial or some other uh, context, it means that there was a textile present. What was it doing there? What was its meaning? What was its function? Uh, something that in the past would have been ignored. Now we can get a lot of information from these teensy little pieces that survive. I love the
0: fact that these tiny, unregarded pieces of fabric that have lain in the dust for centuries have the capacity to stir ghosts of long ago, to bring alive people who made beautiful and useful fabrics, who cared about what they made and what they wore. There is something breathtaking about being able to see work that is tens of thousands of years old and understand how the woman who made it, designed her project and carried it out, to follow the thought processes of someone who lived so long before us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haptic and Hue and a huge thank you to Margarita Gleber of the University of Padua for sharing her knowledge and wisdom. If you'd like to see pictures of some of the figures and textiles Margarita talked about or read a full script of this podcast, you can find them on Haptic and Hugh's website at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen. Haptic and Hugh is hosted by me, Joe Andrews, and produced and edited by Bill Taylor. It's an independent production supported entirely by its listeners who bring us ideas and generously fund this podcast via Buy Me A Coffee or by becoming a member of the new Friends of Haptic & Hue, which costs £50 a year or £5 a month. This keeps the podcast truly independent and free from sponsorship and advertising. If you'd like to find out more, it's on the website at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash friends. Meanwhile, with thanks to Shannon Nottestad, a listener in Portland, Oregon, I will leave you this time with a poem called Instruction by the American poet Hazel Hall, who made her living in the 19th and early 20th centuries, using her needle. My hands that guide a needle in their turn are led, relentlessly and deftly, as a needle leads a thread. Other hands are teaching my needle. When I sew, I feel the cool, thin fingers of hands I do not know. They urge my needle onward, They smooth my seams until the worry of my stitches smothers in their skill. All the tired women who sewed their lives away speak in my deft fingers as I sew today.